Well, here we are. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Jaden and I were talking about the next sermon series. It was probably more than a couple of weeks. It was probably five weeks ago, six weeks ago. Uh, we're talking about the next sermon series after Easter. And we decided to go on one uh, based on the uh, topic or surrounding the topic eternity. Uh, eternity's, uh, the idea of eternity is something that's infinite and unending. And I think this is a really, really fitting time for us to do this. Uh, there is more going on in our world. There's more going on with people than meets the eye. Now, you just need to know that this, the statement I just made, you might just be happy to assume it and you might be with me on it, but this is a contested idea in our culture. Um, most people on the planet think that there's something going on beyond what meets the eye, beyond the merely physical but in our culture, there is a big battle going on in this direction. Um, our culture wants to tell people that the natural world is all that there is. Now, it's curious because worldwide, that is not the view of the majority of people worldwide, that what you can see is all there is. Most people think that there's more going on than meets the eye. The uh, term used to describe people who think that natural is all that there is, is scientific naturalism, or the belief that the physical is all that there is. Their view is that every single thing that happens can be explained through natural means. Here's a quote from, uh, from one of the proponents of this belief system. Uh, he's not alive anymore, but it's, it's a classic quote from Carl Sagan. Uh, Carl Sagan said this, he said, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. <laughs> Does it sound familiar to you? Uh, so, sound like something you've heard before? Carl Sagan was an American astronomer, cosmologist, astrophysicist, astrobiologist, author, science popularizer. Uh, he was pretty well known. Um, he, was a, he was a communicator of science. And you'll notice in Carl Sagan's quote, the play on the biblical phrasing. And it actually, uh, this phrasing shows up in Revelation 1 verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. He's playing on that biblical phrasing. Uh, and this highlights the nature of the battle that we've got in our culture. Um, we've got uh, people in our culture who think that the physical is not all that there is, but we've got a loud, loud voice in our culture that says, no, the physical is all there is, and they're at war with one another. Um, and and it's, it's worth noting just at this point that this battle between scientific naturalism isn't just a battle with Christianity, although that's what we see in Australia. It's a battle with every religion that says there's something else other than the merely physical and you just need to know at this point that this is what's going on in our culture. This is what you see on the news. This is, this is what explains human behaviour. Uh, here's the way another um, promoter of this view, uh, Richard Dawkins, who's uh, an evolutionary biologist, author, media commentator. This is the way that Richard Dawkins puts it. You'll love this one. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt 
other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now, let me make a few quick comments about Dawkins. Uh, you should have noticed a chill go up your spine when you read that. That's the first thing. I mean, have a look at what he said. He said there is nothing outside of genes, chemicals, DNA and physical forces. Nothing. There's nothing such as good and evil. There's, no, there's not really any good or bad luck. I mean, he's kind of saying it's just good or bad luck, but what, whatever that is, maybe it's desirable luck or undesirable luck, there's actually even nothing that is truly rational because it's all like you could form a rational argument, but that doesn't even really count because then that's just genes and DNA. It's not really even a thing. I mean, it kind of says that Dawkins even, his statement even collapses upon itself. You know, is Dawkins saying something that is the overarching truth over the whole world? It's like, well, thanks, Dawkins. You didn't really say anything. It was just a bunch of genes and molecules bouncing around. Uh, just the yabbering of those natural forces. See, this statement is messy. It's profoundly unsatisfying. And I want to just push it a little bit further. Because I think it doesn't account for human experience in any way. In fact, it doesn't get, even go close to dealing with human experience, experience well. Let me give you three really quickly. First one's this. How does this account for human suffering? If everything is just the physical, then look at what it does to suffering. It's just good and bad luck. I mean, think about the current crisis. Go to New York now, walk into Spain, walk into Italy and say, hey, guys, this actually isn't bad. It's just bad luck. It's just genes and DNA and molecules, and they're just all buzzing around. There's physical forces. That's all it is. There's, there's nothing more than the physical, and your experience of suffering and hardship of thousands and thousands of people dying is not really anything. It's not even a thing. You know, the fear and the suffering you're going through just doesn't, it, it's, I don't know, it's a human experience, but what even is that? It's only genes and chemicals and, and molecules. There's no meaning in life, none. No purpose. This is what Dawkins has just said. There is no purpose. Um, there's only the purpose that you create for yourself, which isn't real purpose anyway. That's just molecules as well. Let me give you another one. Um, uh, another example of an area where this, this quote or this view doesn't actually capture what's really going on, love. Love becomes interesting. <laughs> if you believe this quote, if you really, really believe this quote, love's not even love. It, it becomes something pretty ordinary. I mean, picture it this way. I, I'm in a church at the moment. On the way home, I grab a bunch of flowers from somewhere um, that's open today and I go home to my wife and I say I knock on the front door which is a bit weird but she comes to the door I've got these flowers and I uh, you know sh she opens the door she goes oh and she's feeling like I love her and she's going oh this is lovely this is this is amazing what you've done for me and I just go well it's actually not really anything it's just molecules really that's all it is and they just hey well it was just your lucky day they bounced around in the right direction and somehow I ended up here holding a bunch of them in a flower bouquet. 
Don't get carried away, darling. It's not really love after all. Um, I love you, but that doesn't really mean anything anyway. Um, here's the last one. If you really believe that the physical is all that there is, where does, where does self-sacrifice fit in? What about, what about that? We just had Anzac Day yesterday. You see, no one argues that self-sacrifice for the good of another is intrinsically good. You, you don't have to have an argument about whether that's good or bad. Everyone just knows when you do that, that's good. But what on earth would the purpose be of giving your life up for someone else, especially if the other person is not the fittest in the survival of the fittest? They're not as fit as you, but yet you give up your life for them. You know, we, we know that self-sacrifice is intrinsically good. You, you just, you can't pull out the fact that self-sacrifice is good. It's actually at the center of the universe. We know every single time we see it that it's good. Are we going to say that every single soldier that's gone out and given their life for the sake of defending Australia and protecting peace in Australia is just a bunch of molecules that just happen to go in the right direction at the right time? Is that what we're going to say? Seems ridiculous to me. So I want to spend uh, a little bit of time uh, this morning considering what might be a couple of signposts that might point us in the direction that there's more going on than meets the eye. And what I'm talking about here is not uh, in a broad general sense, but with humanity. Does, is humanity, um, is a human person just physical or is there something more to them? Now, You've got to bear in mind, I could put any of these um, thoughts out to you and you just better believe that there's going to be people who are going to try and explain it using a different worldview because that's what you need to do. If you have a different, a different kind of belief system, you have to kind of work out how that computes in your belief system. But the interesting thing about um, the a comparison between the, uh, the Christian worldview and the secular naturalist worldview where the physical is all that there is is we actually have more of an open mind <laughs> there you go the reason why we have more of an open mind is we've got a category for things happening that aren't actually scientific they're not solely um, physical whereas if the view that you've got is that the physical is all there is you have to explain every single thing within that framework let me um let me give you three uh, really quick kind of signposts, and uh, these are probably mostly going to be unsatisfying to you because I'm going to rip through them really quick, but I think they're signposts that there's something going on with the human uh, person that's more than just physical. Here's the first one. I think I just find the, the conscience curious. And the conscience is just interesting, isn't it, that there's this mechanism inside of us that points outside of us to the highest moral standard, the highest set of rules about what's good and what's not good that we can think of. Uh, Richard Sibb said, the, con the conscience is the soul reflecting on itself. Now, I find it fascinating that even when we want to go and do a particular thing, our conscience will still appeal to the highest moral standard that we can think of, even as we're doing that thing. Now, you could say, but the conscience only works on what's kind of built into it, and you would be right. Um, 
But does that sum up all of it? What is this thing inside of us that wants to connect with an external moral code or moral standard? Why do we feel bad about some things? Why do we feel guilty even, after, even as we go after what we want? And I think it's because we innately have been built to recognise that there's a moral standard out there outside of ourselves. We know that self-sacrifice is good and we know that hurting children for your own selfish ends is wrong. We know those things. And I think the conscience points to the existence of this uh, external um, moral law over us. Here's the second one. And I'm going to read a quote here from C.S. Lewis. I'll put that one on the screen. Uh, This is C.S. Lewis's argument from desire. And his big idea here is that if you have inside of yourself a desire for something that you can't find any in this, anywhere in this world, um, one of the places you can go, quite logically, is you're actually made for a different world. Let me uh, read it for you. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find, this is critical, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. You know, Lewis is saying that there's a whole bunch of things inside of us that are longing for something that you just can't get in this world. Why can't you get it in this world? Because you weren't made for it. You weren't made to stop here. There's things in in the world that God's created, the world that we are heading toward if we love him, that are going to bring satisfaction to the deepest desires of our heart. Um. All right, here's the last one. And this one might sound a little bit like a UFO kind of thing, but you just need to know this is not like a UFO thing. Here's a third one. The third pointer, I think, to there being more to the person than uh, the physical is near-death experiences. Now, uh, this is way more significant than you might think. And you probably have heard about some of these things, but... um, Near-death experiences are pretty widespread. And I think it's estimated in America at the moment that there's about 30 million people who have had near-death experiences. Near-death experiences get written up in uh, medical journals. There's actually a, um, a, a journal called the, uh, the International Association for Near-Death Studies, which is a peer-reviewed journal which publishes uh, a bunch of stuff about near-death experiences. Now, there's lots and lots of different parts to uh, near-death experiences Um, and and the reports that people give. Um, And it can be hard to kind of work out how all those things kind of fit together. But um, the near-death experiences that are particularly fascinating are the ones that are highly evidential. And this is where people in their near-death experience state um, actually get to know something that they shouldn't actually know. Uh, There's been reports of people knowing what the number of the ambulance was that they were actually in uh, having the, um, the near-death experience. And the number was on the roof of the ambulance and they actually were above their body and they could actually see that. 
Uh, one particular instance, which I think I've shared at the Project Church before, uh, which is very well documented and I understand was published in a medical journal, uh, was a young girl um, who we'll call Katie, uh, had nearly drowned and she hadn't registered a pulse for 19 minutes. Um, she had massive brain swelling on the CT scan. She was without a gag reflex. She was profoundly comatose. Um, when the, uh, the doctor... Uh, reporting it, saw her, uh, he realised he could see that her pupils were fixed and dilated and he expected that there was irreversible brain damage. She was put on life support, given very little chance to survive and then, surprise, surprise, uh, three days later she wakes up. No brain damage and what she does after she wakes up is she starts reporting on all these facts uh, regarding the emergency room, her resuscitation, and even the physical descriptions of the two doctors that were treating her. Um, she, uh, she went on to recall details about her family at home, and the doctors kind of checked with the family at home. She uh, identified a popular rock song that her sister was listening to. She observed her father. She could see uh, her mother. Uh, all of this happened when she said an angel called Elizabeth took her to her house. Um, and, and she observed all these things in her house. And, um, you yeah, know, the doctors got excited and they thought, OK, you see your mum cooking dinner. What was your mum cooking? And she said mum was cooking chicken and rice. And, uh, and then when the, when the family comes in, they ask them all these questions. And Katie was right in all of the details about what had gone on. Uh, you know, there's, there's something going on with humanity that's way more than just physical. That, that just doesn't fit that well-documented story doesn't actually fit inside the worldview of a natural view of life. Now, you could draw a bunch of conclusions from this and you could take it in a bunch of directions, but I think that's the safest way to go, is there's something to us that's more than merely physical. And this is what we find in Scripture as well. And what we find in Scripture about humanity is... Uh, is um, there's a part of humanity that's, that's non-physical. And it, it just fits. It fits our experience of the way that life goes. So I'd love for you to look up Genesis chapter 2 and start at verse 4. We're going to start there. Genesis 2 verse 4. You know, the Bible is the best evidence that we've got for the existence of the soul. Let's see what God actually has to say. This is on the creation of uh, humanity. Genesis 2, starting at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the face of the ground. There's a critical verse here. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Go back to uh, verse 7 there and just hover a little over verse 7. 
Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. What's God doing? He's gathering dust together, and he's forming humanity from the dust in the ground. What an amazing contrast to Genesis chapter 1, around verse 26 there, where humanity is, uh, is royal. We're royal family. We're made in God's image. Now in Genesis 2, we get some more of the story, and we realize that we're actually created out of the dust of the earth. It's pretty earthy. <laughs> and I think it, it flags, I read one commentator and it just really impacted me that it flags that God's activity is to create something good out of dust. When you get across, across to Genesis 3 after the fall of humanity, the classic statement that's read at funerals, for dust you are and to dust you shall return. What's the work of God? Create something good out of dust. What's the work of humanity in our fallen state? Take the good work of God and take it back to dust. That's how it works. God starts with nothing and ends up with something amazing. Uh, humanity, on the other hand, has a way of unraveling God's work. God winds and creates. We unwind and uncreate. Dust to human is God's job. Human to dust is what our acting often does. And you want to think about God as a kind of potter here. God is a craftsman working with some material. And his work is pretty significant. You know, shaped from dust. Well, that's not normal for a potter to use, to use dust to uh, create something. But you need to know that God is a shaper of people. And I mean literally a shaper of people. You know, and not just from the very beginning. Some of you might go... Yeah, no, I understand he did it at the start. And I just go, well, no, every time someone is created, he's the shaper. Uh, Psalm 139 verse 13 says this, the psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. You need to know that God is actively and personally involved in the creation of every single person. Now just think for a moment about God's physical nearness to us in that process you know and some of you might go oh did his phone ring while he was creating me <laughs> was he trying to text when he was creating my nose no he was on the job and he was happy with the job and your body is part of what makes you you but we're not just a collection of dirt I mean in some ways there would be a fair bit of a agreement with the um, in terms of humanity there'd be a fair bit of agreement with scientific naturalism at this point if God just made you out of dirt but that's not where he stops we are not just merely dust remember verse 7 then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life you know there is a divine element to every single person it's God's breathing into us, which makes humanity a living creature, you know. Now, when, when I read that, I'm just kind of, that's a bit weird, right? Because it doesn't feel cool to have someone breathing on you. You start thinking things like, did they do their teeth? And how long ago since they had some garlic bread? And uh, it just kind of, it gets weird. Um, but just, if you can put that aside for a minute, um, just think about how incredibly personal this is. A kind of CPR, now, one commentator put it this way, and I, it's a bit confronting, to be honest, but um, it, it cashes out the intimacy of this, 
this moment. Um, this is what the commentator said. Uh, this is the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss. This is what God did with humanity. You know, you, you see some of this kind of thing in the New Testament. You get to John 20, verse 22, and Jesus um, It says this about Jesus. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. You see that? It's that same thing. It's like breathing on you. God gives us something of who he is. And it makes us come alive. And it makes us, us. There's still some similarity to the animals because we're still dust in a sense. But there's something more going on there. We are made in his image. We have authority over the animals and we're called to name them. Now, you might ask, is this what God's talking about? Uh, in Genesis chapter, t- chapter 2, that we've got a genuine, just the, the breathing in of the soul to people. And there are some translations that go that way. Um, it seems to head in that direction. Uh, But I'm not sure we can fully get there just with Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 that it's talking about God breathing a soul into us. But as we look further afield in uh, Scripture, we find it describing humanity as having a physical part, a body, and a non-physical part, a soul. Uh, We aren't just a living being like animals. Uh, There's a part of us that makes us us. And here's, here's a few Scriptures for you to look up later. You go to Genesis 35, 18, and we see that as a person dies, the soul leaves. We go to Moses' best of sermon in Deuteronomy 4, verse 29. He talks about the soul. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. And so at that point, we actually start to see that Scripture's got a few words that it's going to use synonymously, kind of interchangeably. Uh, one of them is, uh, is heart and one is soul. And really what Scripture is doing is saying that it's, it's grasping or, or grabbing a hold of the, the wholeness of who someone is. Um, 1 Samuel 18, and many of you would know the friendship that Jonathan and David had in the Old Testament. Um, 1 Samuel 18, 1 says, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. You know, that, that's the whole of these two fellows were, uh, were just connected to each other and they just loved each other and they were very, very deep friends. It's like the whole person is involved. So you can see here that the idea of soul is like the whole kind of person. And the soul is also connected to emotions in the scriptures and not just kind of surface level um, skirmishes, so to speak, but actually deep emotions. Now listen to this from Psalm 63 verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. It gets down really, really deep. Psalm 88, 3. My soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. (laughs) This is like the suffering and the trouble is getting right down into the core of who I am, the essence of who I am. You know, you've got the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12 um, where... uh, where he's going to lose his soul. He's going to lose the true essence of who he is. Now, physical is important, and Scripture speaks to that, but there's a bit of a weird tension sometimes in the Bible between the physical and the non-physical part of who you are. They're both really, really important. You know, after you, after you die, there's a part of you that goes on. You know, 
And, and there's even a death that can happen to your soul, the, the non-physical part of you, uh, due to your sin and your rebellion. This is James 5, 19 to 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So your body can die, tick, and then your soul can experience a death as well by rebellion to God. James chapter 1 talks about the way that you can preserve your soul. The way you preserve your soul is by listening to the word, listening to what God has to say. You know, your, your true person can be saved. I'm talking about your soul, your non-physical soul. Your true person can be saved or it can be lost. All right. That was a really quick Cook's tour of the soul. Um, so much more that could be said. But I want to finish on a really, really practical note. So if you just got back from the kitchen getting a coffee, um, listen in, right? Because this is really important. Here's three things to finish on that are really, really practical. Here's the first one. Your destiny, the destiny of your soul is really, really important. If there's a part of you that goes on after your physical body dies, then what happens to that bit of you that goes on is really, really important. I mean, the Bible teaches really clearly that there is a part of you that goes on. We saw some other pointers, the argument from desire, the, the conscience and the near-death experiences. It, all the evidence we have, I think, is that we've got a part of us that goes on after we die. So if there is, it's really, really important what happens to that soul. There's a part of you that is going to go on. And, and you want to just be clear about where that's going and what's going to happen with that. You know, when you die, it's not going to be over when you die. Here's the second thing. <laughs> if there's a part of us that's non-physical, um, this, this will sound a little depressing, but it's actually really good news. Uh, suffering is a thing at that point. If it's, if it's just physical, we just say it's not a thing. There's nothing really that's happening other than just genes and molecules and things bouncing into each other. You know, you know, you know, even if you don't know Jesus, you know that when you experience deep and long-lasting suffering, that there's more going on than just a physical thing. You just know it. It's painful. You can identify with it. Maybe you're not even a Christian, but you can identify with Psalm 88.3 where the psalmist writes, my soul is full of troubles. Have you had that experience? Have you been in a place where you just go, oh, my soul is just full of troubles? Well, here's the good news. <laughs> That's a thing. And here's some more good news is that you just need to know that God is intimately involved with you. There is a part of you that is the fullness of who you are as a person. And he, as a person, is with you in the middle of the troubles that you're in. Here's the third one. Third practical application. Uh, what you do to other people matters. 
You are more than mere chemicals. You know, what, what you believe and what you operate on within your life that uh, what you're doing and who you are is significant aligns with the truth. It aligns with who you are. That sense that you have, that consciousness that there's more going on than just the physical um, connects with reality. And I want to say to you that love is love. Because the soul and non-physical exists, love is love. And you know what else? Hate and hurt is deeper than what you think too. Love is deeper and hate and hurt is deeper. We are not just dealing with the mere physical. We are dealing with people who are far more substantial than that. There is a personhood to you and there is a personhood to other people which is much more substantial than what we think sometimes. And we ought to just slow up a little bit and honour and respect the creatures that God has made around us. I want to finish with a uh, C.S. Lewis quote and then we'll uh, sing another song together. This is a really powerful quote. I'll put this one on the screen for you. Text might be a little small, but you can come back to it later if you need to in the live feed and and, uh, read through it. Here's what Lewis says. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. Listen to this. (laughs) There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. They end when they die. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. (laughs) But, listen to this, it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendours. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. Oh, we must play, but our merriment must be that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption, and our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. What's Lewis saying? You don't have to be serious all the time, but you need to take people seriously because there's more to them than meets the eye. Let me pray. Jesus, I just love how you uh, have seen to it that uh, stuff will be written in Scripture that would just help us to understand us. And as we read it, we just can go, yeah, no, um, that, that matches my experience. And uh, we, we just thank you that you articulate all of that, that you, just, you write it, you've written it down for us so that we can know ourselves, we can know other people and we can know you and how you connect with us. God, I pray that you just help us to respect and honour the people around us.
not as mere objects that are in our way, but as, um, but as people with souls that will go on after their bodies die. God, energise us as we love one another and we push back against hate and the things that deeply hurt people. Amen. Amen.